Oh, yeah. Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network, hour two of the radio program. Once again, I want to apologize not being able to have the right media today. Kind of want to sing, you know, the Pass Ball Show theme song. You know, tune in to John Pielli's Pass Ball Show on johnpielli.com. But, you know, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to play that today. But we'll be back next week with the same old stuff. Uh, great interview with Eli Gruba. And if you could get a chance to listen to it, it was great. I mean, you really, what I really love about this game of baseball and what a lot of people don't really look at is the history of the game and the fact that the game was so much different 50 years ago. And it's not what it is right now. You know, you could talk about what was different then and what is, you know, you know some things are similar. But from, you know, the fact that pitchers took hitting seriously back then to, you know, the etiquette in the clubhouse, you know, a lot of the, you know, silly stuff, the shenanigans and stuff that goes on now would be unacceptable back then. And the game was serious. It was a lot more serious. You didn't fraternize with the opposition. You know, now, now the guys are sitting there, you know, you got the best players on each team hugging before the game. You know, and then they, you know, they talk about, you know, all the trash talking between teams when they fight and stuff like that. It was nothing like it was then. You hated the opposition in 1960. They weren't your friends. They were the enemy. And, yes, you ended up getting traded to a different team. They became your friends again. But I'm telling you, it was different back then. And, once again, I want to thank Eli for having a couple minutes. Uh, talked about it, if you get a chance to look at it, JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty blog. Um, another anniversary came up, and it was really a, kind of an ironic thing. And that was the firing of future Hall of Fame manager Tony La Russa from the Chicago White Sox in 1986. And those of you who don't know the story, he was actually fired by the general manager of the White Sox, who at the time was now longtime broadcaster Hawk Harrelson. And he fired La Russa after a 26-38 and 38 start. And a team that really wasn't going anywhere. They had some talent on the team. Yes, they had, you know, Hall of Famers at one, you know, one point on the same team. Tom Seaver and Steve Carlton. Carlton Fisk was there. But this was a this wasn't necessarily an underachieving team. This was a team that <clears throat> lost the pizzazz that it had a couple of years before when Lamar Hoyt was, you know, winning twenty games for them. And things, you know, kind of didn't go well for that team. That was a team in transition. And looking back, I mean, this team didn't get back to respectability until it made the postseason in 1993. So to really blame the manager or to blame, you know, a Tony La Russa for everything that goes on there was, you know, kind of wasn't right. And you, you could see by the end of the season that La Russa had something and was going to be a major league manager for a long time because he took over an Oakland A's team that was managed by Jackie Moore. And... They had some young players. They had a couple of veterans, but he had them winning by the end of the season. He was 11 games over 500 as a manager in 86. And, of course, with some tweaks of the roster here and there, got that team to the World Series three straight years from 1988 to 1990. And, you know, along with Dave Duncan, he made that team special. He brought that team some energy, and he made that team better. And, of course, that was the beginning of, of the revolution that he did with the bullpen and relievers and stuff like that. And Rick Honeycutt really becoming the first loogie. And, of course, Dennis Eckersley becoming going from a starting pitcher to a closer. And everything they were able to do with all the pitchers they had there. But the framework was really started in 1986 with a guy by the name of Dave Stewart. Who came over, you know, who came over, finished 9-5 and five 
was a reliever, became a starter. Of course, was a reliever and starter back and forth prior to that. But really made his first impact then. And I think it was really, you know, interesting to see how that started. You know, and obviously moved on into 1987. Of course, they had a rookie by the name of Jose Canseco in 1986. Another rookie by the name of Mark McGuire in 1987. And then, of course, a lot of the pieces came. You know, Bob Welsh. You know, Carney Lansford was already there. Tony Phillips was already there. And that was a team that ended up taking off. And they deserve all the credit and respect that they got. And Tony La Russa brought a World Series championship to Oakland for the first time, you know, t- since, you know, 1974. And obviously a different team, a different era. And really, you know, he, he started his legendary career as a manager then. And he ended up, you know, of course, managing until 1995 where he took over to St. Louis Cardinals in 1996. And, you know, made it to the World Series in 2000 and what was it, 2004. He almost made it in 2000. Of course, won a World Series in 2006. And, of course, his last year, last year in uh, 2011. So Tony La Russa was fired. So my, my question was, how do you fire Tony La Russa? Now, the critic may say, hindsight says, how do you know? But I think, you know, a White Sox team that wasn't going anywhere should have stuck with their manager a little bit longer. Moving on to the Tampa Bay Rays. And, of course, there was an incident the other day where between the Rays and the Washington Nationals and Nationals manager Davey Johnson calls, you know, calls the attention to the umpire that there may be some foreign substance on the glove of relief pitcher Jose Peralta of the Rays. And that starts a little back and forth between him and Joe Madden. Joe Madden doesn't like it. You know, Davey Johnson essentially calls him a wuss, yada, yada, yada. But the bottom line is, you know, if, if players are doing illegal things, and I just talked about Freddie Galvis with the steroids, there's a penalty for it. And Peralta got suspended. He's going to appeal the suspension. But listen, if you're doing stuff you're not supposed to, there is no problem with the manager of the other team pointing out what you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. And you say, yeah, it's a little bit of gamesmanship. Sure, it's a little bit of gamesmanship. But you know what? The bottom line is, you know, if the game isn't played on a fair level, and I, and I don't think Jose Peralta was doing anything to doctor the ball. I don't think he was doing anything to give himself a distinct advantage. I think a power hitter that hits a fastball or a hanging curveball or something is going to hit it whether there's lube on the ball or not. But listen, you have every right. You have every right to show the, you know, bring attention to something that isn't right in the game. And I don't think Davey Johnson did anything wrong. Listen, if the shoe was on the other foot, Joe Madden would be the first one to come out of the dugout. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, if it, if it was, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot with Joe Madden, he would not be as upset. He would be the one making the big deal about what's going on. And, you know, I thought it was a little bit of sour grapes on his part for, you know, calling out Davey Johnson for it because I don't think I don't think that was right. I think, some listen, the guy did something he shouldn't have. Bottom line is that's it. You know, it happens. And you know what? If the shoe was on the other foot, Joe Madden would have been the antagonistic part of this. He would not hesitate to call out some foreign substance on a glove of a different pitcher, whether it's for the Red Sox or the Yankees or even the Nationals. If, you know, if, if Sean Burnett 
Looks like he has something on his glove. Joe Madden's going to be the first one out of the dugout to point that out. And, you know, that being said, like I said, I think it, I think it's a little bit of nothing. But at the same time, it does kind of make Joe Madden, who has looked very good as a manager. He he play, you know, he, he thinks outside of the box. He does some peculiar things. And he really, you know, he's he's gotten that team to play hard for him for years now. You know, this isn't a guy that just took over. This is a guy that really has this team by the balls. And the Rays really play hard for him. But I think he kind of took a little bit of a credibility hit when he, you know, he, he took a shot at Davey Johnson for him. Now, right now, I'm going to put that on pause and uh, be joined right now by uh, former pitcher for the Phillies, Rockies, and Braves, Marvin Freeman. Marvin, you there, buddy? This is me. Hey, how you doing, buddy? Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Oh, I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem, man. Thanks for coming on. Um, you know, you, you're living in Chicago now. You still you still throw it all? Do I still play it all? Yeah, you still you still throw the ball around? Oh, uh, yeah, I throw it around and um, practice all the time. I coach a high school team, so they always want to um, test their skills and um, try and play beat the pro. So <laughs> I get a chance to kind of relive some of that old um, heyday that I had back in the day. Yeah, because I think about like you know what I did when I was younger, and you'd want to you'd want to get a group really that you're playing against to be like the best possible group. Now, do you get together with another group of like former major league players or other you know big you know you know players that made it and take on group you know groups of younger kids? Is that was that something that you like to do? No, I mean we're not actually out there running bases or playing the game. I'm just throwing to them and just giving them different um, pitches. Um, and really just boasting all along the way, just trying to let them know that when I really had good stuff, they couldn't have had, they didn't have a chance to foul it off, let alone hit it. So I still do a lot of chirping. But as far as getting out there and getting on the field and running bases, I did come from a um, Braves had a uh, alumni game about two weeks ago, and I played a little right field and I ran one ball down, and it was. Um, it was a task, man. I mean, when I got back to the hotel, it felt like I ran several fly balls down, but that one turned into, you know, a job. So getting a little over the hill for to actually be out there on the field, but it's still in my heart. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff to look back on. Now, you had a chance to, you know, pitch both as a starter and as a reliever. What did you enjoy doing better, or was there one that you actually preferred doing? Well, I prefer starting. I mean, that's yeah. just, that's only obvious. It's the life. You don't you know, pitch once every fifth day, and you got a chance to get in a, a routine of preparing yourself for each start. Um, you know what you're going to be doing every day, um, as opposed to relieving. You're more of a almost an everyday player. You got to come to the ballpark with the intent that you might have to play today. So it's totally different mentalities. It gives you a lot more downtime to. Um, to to think about what you're going to do when you're starting. But as a reliever, you just got to be, you know, short memory going out there and taking the day in and day out and just um, trying to do your part to contribute for the team that day. But as a starter, you got, you know, five days to think about it. If you have a good start or a bad start, you got a long time in between to kind of get ready for the next one. So that can be good or bad. Yeah, I, I agree with you, man. And I, looking back, you know, you got you had a chance really to – be a reliever when you pitched for the Atlanta Braves. And, of course, you know, you went to the Rockies, you became a starter. 
He actually finished fourth in the National League Cy Young vote in 1994. Um, how, how, go back to 1994. Of course, there was a strike and everything. Do you think the strike kind of put a damper on what would have been an even better season for you? Because you were off to a tremendous start that year. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I always look back on that and wonder what may have been. But, um, you know, I, I was um, probably having the best year of my pitching career. And um, it was um, everything that I threw up to the plate was working for me. So it was like I was in that proverbial zone that they speak about so much. And, you know, to to go through that, you want to you want the season to go on forever. But I have come to grips with the fact that it was wiped out by a strike and, what can you do about it? Just um, take what you did on the field, and that's all you got left. So whatever's on the back of that baseball card, you know, there's no asterisks with that. No, absolutely not. Now, you got a chance to pitch in a postseason for the Atlanta Braves in uh, 1992. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how it felt to, you know, make the postseason and, you know, contribute to, you know, an Atlanta Brave team that was very good that year. Well, in 91, I was uh, right in the middle of the mix, and I ended up having um, disc surgery at the end of the season in September. So I missed the playoffs, but I was on the bench, and I had a chance to kind of get a feel what it was like to be in that atmosphere. But in 92, getting a chance to play, it was a totally different story because, like I said before, when you play, it just seems like you have a little bit more control of your emotions more so than being on the sidelines cheering where you have no control whatsoever. So it was a little bit easier to, to um, kind of go through it in 92, getting in the games. Um, I pitched three games. I had a – I think I gave up um, – I had a, I had one bad outing in Atlanta against the Pirates. I think my, my homie Lloyd McClendon hit a home run off me that day. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's um, it's just being able to get out there and you're – Back then, it was only uh, two teams that qualified every year for the playoffs, so it was a lot more intense to get there. And um, just to be one of the four teams at the end of the season still playing was great. Um, still look back on that with fond memories and goosebumps. Yeah, now that's, it's interesting that you brought that up about you know only being the two teams in each league making it. Now you know there's you know there's you know an extra team now. There's you know four teams from each league making a postseason. What's your opinion on that? Do you feel that it's it's something that's taken away from the battles that you know you had, let's say, you know, in the in you know in the early '90s when it was about you know one team winning one division, or or do you think it's better for the game right now? Well, as far as for the fans, it's better now because it's more involvement throughout the end of the season. Um, before, if your team was out of it in September, you know, you really didn't have any any interest of watching the games unless you're just one of those diehard fighters regardless. But if your team was out of it, then the interest was kind of low. So to add a wild card, you know, it, it kind of gives that team that, that's right there a chance to continue to play hard and, and you know, give the city, the fans, the, the city that they play in, a chance to see their team compete in the playoffs. So it's definitely fan-friendly. But it was a lot more... Uh, cutthroat back in the day because I remember we won 103 games and San Francisco won 102 and they didn't make the playoffs. Yeah, that's that's so, that's that's, that's, a, that's a shame to miss the playoffs having that many wins. Exactly, and you never know what happens in a playoff series. Anybody can win those, but I'm sure they would have died to have a wild card back then. So, 
you know, you can see how it will affect um, a team now, you know, giving them that chance to actually extend their season and maybe get a chance to win a world championship. Yeah, now going back as a player who played, you know, when, you know, there was only, you know, a division winner of each division, did it did it take a lot more out of you? Did you lose some desire? Let's say you were on a team that wasn't that wasn't performing and, you know, around July, you know, going into August, it looked like things were going to, you know, there was no chance of getting anything. Was it was there a big difference between that and let's say a team like that that may may think they have a chance to win a wild card right now? Oh yeah, I mean, if you're out of it in July, coming to the ballpark, man, is just it's totally different from being in it all the way until it's over with. I mean, the energy level that you have, your teammates have, and, and, and the fans have in general is enough to push you through those rough, hot summer days. But, boy, when you're, you know, scraping at the bottom of the pile and you're trying to just play out the string, it's really hard to go out there and, and I mean, it's it's your job, first of all, but as far as getting that extra boost of adrenaline that you would get, from a positive side, it's really hard to keep trying to get it up every day if you got a, a lot of games left to kind of just, you know, play hard. I mean, I, I see how guys, when they fall out of it, how they, you know, may, they, they, we call it a salary drive. Once it becomes a salary drive, then you're just playing for stats now. And then a lot of things um, go out the window. Like, you know, if you – got a guy up there when you need to win a ball game and you got to get him over to second base, then you're going to bunt him over and take that for the team. But when it gets down to the point where, it's, you know, you're playing for just, you know, your stats, instead of trying to get that guy over, you might be swinging for the fence there. <laughs> so it definitely changes your approach mentally. It shouldn't, but, you know, being on the field and being on both ends of, the situation, I can easily understand how guys can, you know, fall into certain patterns that the season will, you know, present present itself to. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And this is actually a good transition into my next question. When you came up with the Phillies, and, you know, fortunately the teams that you played for with the Phillies were not really in a pennant race, do you think that benefits you a little more as a younger player? Who's looking to establish himself and maybe he may may get a little more of a chance than they would if the team was competing? Well, it depends because sometimes clubs allow younger players to take their lumps on the field and, and kind of go through the process of learning, you know, through experience. Whereas um, some clubs expect you to come up and produce right away so you can plug a hole or fill a gap that they need maybe to make the team better for next year. So. It depends on what the situation is for the club. But with the Phillies, when I came up, we were maybe 15, 20 games out. They wanted to um, see what some of the young pitching looked like. Um, they gave me an opportunity to go out there, and, you know, I I had some success early, and I got to a point to where I felt like, you know, it was, you know, it was at some point do or die, you know, when, when they tell you, hey, we're going to give you another shot, and if you don't come through this time, well, you might be going back to AAA. It's kind of hard to pitch with that type of, um, you know, restriction around you because you can't really, you know, it, it just makes you look over your shoulder, basically. So, like, for example, when I um, played against some of the younger Atlanta Braves, like Glavin, Smoltz, and 
and those guys in their rookie and first and second year, the club said, hey, we're going to stick with these guys. We're going to let them take their lumps, and they learn how to pitch at the big league level. Well, sometimes you don't get that opportunity, and you have to, um, you know, go up and down to learn that lesson. But, you know, all in all, it's still you got to get out there and perform. So no matter where you're at, no matter what situation you're in, they expect you to get people out. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now I had uh, I had Eli Gruba on the first part first part of my show. He was a pitcher for the Yankees in the early '60s, and he talked about how important it was at the time to whether when you were a pitcher to learn how to hit and you know take your regular hitting practice. Now, when when you played, was that something that that had already been lost? You know, obviously, right now you look at the way it is. Pitchers don't try to hit at all. They don't put enough practice in whatsoever, and they you know it shows at the plate. Uh, were were you taking regular hitting practice? Did you take a lot of pride in your hitting as a pitcher? Oh yeah, I mean, I was on some pretty um, competitive teams, and in the National League, you know, you only helped yourself out if you were able to, you know, handle the bat at the plate, meaning getting bunched down and and just putting it in play when when there was uh, two outs or just um, things of that nature. But we hit every day at home, you know, when we were at home and. If you were starting, you get to you, you know you got the option to hit on the road. But we were looking forward to batting practice every day. We actually had a game where we would um, see who could hit the most homers in BP. And you know when pitchers take batting practice, that's all they're trying to do is send it out of the park and go deep. And um, you know fortunately for me, one year I won the pitchers BP home run derby. So <laughs> I got that going for me. You got a prize for that? Yeah, pat on the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny, man. Now, I, I got to ask you about this as being, you know, a former pitcher, and obviously the the way pitchers are brought up now, you know, when they when they're a high school prospect and they go into college and they go into the pros, they're babied initially. Do you think Do you think the game has changed for the better or for worse with the way the pitchers are brought up now? Well, you know, that's yet to be determined because if you talk to some of the guys that pitched. Um, Back when they had four-man rotations and things of that nature, they they have a lot of um, a lot of problems with their arms, and that's just because they were allowed to throw unlimited pitches and come back and pitch on two and three days rest. Although they pitch more innings, who's to know what the long-term effects are now? But this is my whole thing with that. I deal with pitchers on an everyday basis. I have a pitching academy. And that question comes up all the time with me. Um, what what do I think about the way pitchers are being handled? Because I, I saw where the, the the guy from the Nationals, um, Strasburg, they said they were going to limit him to 160 innings this year. <clears throat> so I'm thinking if these guys are in the pennant race and he's their horse and he's got 160 innings, they're not going to pitch him? Well, I don't know what they're going to do with that. But I like to leave it up to – individually evaluating pitchers on their personal um, body type, the physical attributes they might have, the history that they display with um, throwing pitches and how they um, how they react when they get to a certain pitch plateau. So it's a lot of variables that go into play. But I do think that they're handling pitchers a lot more cautiously because they're paying guys um, greater salaries for longer terms and they want to make sure if they sign you for five years, they're going to get five years worth of pitching out of you. So 
if you're having a great year and you, you know, like back in the day when guys were pitching 250 innings and, you know, just being left out there to throw until they either lost the lead or the game, I think those days are behind us because there's so many guys that that specialize in the bullpen that they can bring in and just alleviate some of that extra workload that pitchers have to have. Um, so it's definitely being monitored closer, but um, I don't know one way or another if it's um, if it's going to be successful after a guy's out of the game, but who knows what, what it's doing to him now because I, I just don't see how you can take a guy and put a number on him and say, this is um, what you're going to do, we're going to shut you down after this, so. I might have a lot left in the tank, so you never know, man. Yeah, I think I think you're right when it's so you talk about how you know it, it's really hard to determine. But one fact that I'll bring up, I mean, the game, the part, the reason you play the game is to win. You know, no matter where you are, whether you're a young team, whether you're an older team, you go out there and you're out there to win as many games as possible. If poss- if if you got the team that, that you know that has what it takes, you get to the postseason and then you go from there. I, I have a hard time understanding how a team can compromise its its direction as far as where it's going in a given season for something like an innings limit. Like, I, yeah. I, honestly, as a, as, a, as a person that covers baseball, and I'm sure maybe you feel the same way, maybe you don't, you know, for Steven Strasburg to be shut down in, you know, the beginning of August, which he's on a pace to being me being due yeah. right now, where you're yeah. talking 160, 165 innings, I, I think it is, is waving a white flag if you're the Washington Nationals. It's oh, maybe no doubt, it's no maybe doubt. sending a sign that, you know, the goal isn't to win this year. And, the you know, I, I kind of have a problem with that. Yeah, I understand. I mean, it, it sends another message to the team, too. Um, well, hey, we're going to make sure that this guy is um, not going to be hurt in the process, and we want to make sure. But you never know. That may he may he be He may be better off pitching. I mean, he may be better off pitching 200 innings just so his body can start to get accustomed to that type of workload. Um, it's different in college where they pitch a guy on Friday then bring him back in relief on Sunday. You know, um, you let a guy get three or four days in between starts and make sure he's doing all his work. And, you know, this pitch count situation has really gotten out of hand because now they're just automatically saying, you can't do it. You can't do more than this, you know. And that's you got a guy six five that's two hundred and forty pounds, and a guy that's five eleven, one hundred and thirty five pounds. You put the same restriction on each one of those guys. You know, it's it's really hard to it's really hard to do that and expect a bigger, stronger guy, you know, not to be able to take that extra workload. So. That's why I say you have to monitor each pitcher and determine by his history what um, needs to be done. And maybe that's what they've done with uh, Strasburg, um, patterns in this history. And he did have the surgery last year. Maybe they want to be cautious on it this year and maybe let him go as he gets older. But who's, who knows what their reasoning is? I always say you go on the field you with your best soldiers and you play to win. No, absolutely, and I think, and you're you're 100 percent right. It's got to be handled on a case by case basis. I mean, it can't be you know like every pitcher is treated the exact same. I mean, babying Steven Strasburg didn't work in the first place because he already had to have Tommy John surgery, right. so something went wrong there. You know, maybe it's just bad luck. You know, it's possible, but you know the fact that he was being babied at that point, 
didn't save him from you know losing a year of his playing career. Exactly. Nah, so that, 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 that's 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 just some stuff I I don't understand because, and you you mentioned you know you mentioned before about you know some pitchers ended up with you know lingering injuries that affected the rest of their lives, which is true. But you know if you look at you know if you look at guys that had you know you know five ten fifteen year careers the the amount of times that they were injured the amount of full seasons they missed was was definitely different from what's going on now and I mean I mean have have you have you noticed maybe I mean I mean maybe I'm just seeing this by myself but there there seems to be a lot more arm injuries now when it comes to pitchers as opposed to twenty thirty years ago oh exactly exactly I can. Um attest to that because I, I see guys that, that go on the DL for like a sore lat muscle, you know, or something that we would throw through, you know, if they, they always say that it's the difference between being injured and hurt. You know, if you're hurt, you can go ahead and throw through that. That's, that's a little soreness. If you're injured, then that's something that you can't play through. But when you got guys going on, this is the disabled is because they got bicep tenderness and, and they, I mean, it's stuff that they used to make guys pitch with. They're not doing it anymore. And now, you know, I don't think the arm is getting the type of um, work, or the the pitchers are getting the type of functional training and strengthening that's going to allow them to throw more. I mean, they're doing a lot of weightlifting and they're doing a lot of more a lot more innovative exercises that somebody thought of that's going to be beneficial to baseball. And you can see how. When guys worked out less, they got injured more. I mean, less. So guys are working out more. The muscles are a little tighter. The the injuries are coming a little bit more frequently. But you know, I you know you see the game changing, and uh, it, it actually you know you see guys looking better in their uniforms, but on the field less. But do you think uh, baseball would be better off if they cut down on the weight training? It depends on the individual. You know, guys like to feel strong out throughout the whole season, and it's hard to, you know, maintain that strength and recovery if you're not working out consistently. Um, so I don't think guys will ever stop weight training because it's a way that they can, you know, if you lift weights and you you work out really good and you look in that mirror after your workout, it, it releases those endorphins in your mind, and you just start thinking that you're, you know, greatest thing since sliced bread. So it's a, it's a, um, it's a lift to you. It's a adrenaline rush as well. So guys need that type of um, uh, persona to play at that major league level. You got to feel like you're stronger, better than the next guy that you're competing against, or you know you're gonna get stormed over. That's my um, personal. Uh, assessment of it from being a player. You know, if I thought somebody was outworking me, then I'm going to try and do as much or more as this guy so that when we get on the field and I look him in the eye, I know I've prepared myself as much as he has. So I think guys will always be hitting the gym hard, but I just don't – I don't know if the exercises need to change, but something is, um, you know, going to have to be looked into as far as why these guys – so many guys getting injured. Yeah, you think it has anything to do with uh, MLB banning the amphetamines use? Um, uh, you know, I I don't know if that's anything to do with it because I knew a lot of guys that was automatically 
inspired or amped up. I mean, they didn't, you know, they didn't need to take anything for that, but it does, uh, it's like a cup of coffee, I would say. Um, some guys can't get up for work in the morning without that cup of coffee, so it's just a way that you you, know, you got to motivate yourself. You, it's, it's all in your head anyway. So. Yeah, it is. Now I've actually I've I actually do the same thing whether I do my radio show or I do you know my job I I can't do it without being like you know having an energy drink or a coffee in me or something, so you know I understand how some people could be like that but you're 100 percent right there's a bunch of people that just have that natural you know energy that's just going to exist they could roll out of bed and just be a, you know a bullet you know oh exactly and I you know it seems like most of the guys I know are like that um, especially the guys that I competed with you know they're Ready to they're ready to go, be it playing golf or or whatever we're doing now. These guys don't lose that um, competitiveness, and they, they it's, it's always like they're upbeat. So, you know, I, that's one thing that I can say that I do miss about not um, playing is um, just going out there and competing against other guys that was wanting it as much as I did and, and did as much as I did to to get themselves on the field to succeed. So that's. That's something you can try and substitute with golf or cooking or whatever. I'm going to make the best souffle that I've ever made, and, <laughs> you know, you serve it to the family, and if they don't give you that feedback, then you don't get that adrenaline rush. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm cooking, cutting grass, and coaching high school baseball. Yeah, and you know what? You seem, you, you seem excited about it. So, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, man. Hey, listen, now, I just want to ask you one question, man. Throughout your playing career, did you have did you have one moment that you know you look back on and you're just like you know ridiculously impressed by or do you have did you have like an all-time game that you pitched that you remember or you know a certain moment from your playing career that's going to stay with you for the rest of your life yeah I do I actually um was talking about this with my team the other day and they asked me what did it feel like when I went back to face the Braves when I was on the Rockies and at that at that time the Rockies had beaten the Braves um, 16 straight times, and the Braves had never lost to the Rockies. So on the flight in, I was telling my teammates, this is going to end today. I was doing a lot of, you know, I guess getting myself pumped up, but it all it often comes out of my mouth when I'm trying to inspire myself. Other people actually hear it because I talk a lot. So I was telling them how this was going to be it. I was going to do my thing and to actually go out there and beat the Braves on their field in Atlanta and, you know, Squashed the chop. It was um, it was something that um, I'll never forget because it was um, it, you know you always want to get the team back that that let you go or traded you just to show them that you got a lot left in the tank. So that moment there, and also when I hit a homer against the Cubs because I'm from <laughs> Chicago and you know I grew up watching the Cubs. I hit a three-run homer against them in Colorado. That I still got that in my iPhone. I show that. So many times, I think I've broken um, the home run record by now by showing it to so many people. <laughs> yeah, you make people think you hit a ton of them. <laughs> All right, listen, Marvin, thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me on. Hopefully I can speak to you again sometime in the near future. Hey, my pleasure, man. Just um, let me know. All right, man, thanks a lot, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, take care. That was former Braves, Phillies, and Rockies pitcher Marvin Freeman. And, you know, really, we, we talk a lot there about you know, the the evolution of the game of pitching. You know, you got, and, you know, we mentioned a little bit with Eli Gruba about this, you know, that, a you know, a pitcher, a pitcher now, you know, especially a top pitcher, you know, is a prize at a young age, and they are making that extra money. 
and they're an asset to the organization from the day that they're signed. And I think that, you know, I, th- I really think that that's, you know, something that, you know, has to be looked at, you know, and unfortunately it's one of those, one of those things that, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to, you know, it's hard to understand, I guess, because, you know, you looked at pitchers that, you know, through so many, you know, so many days, so many games, or, you know, it, you know, we talk about, you know, like, uh, whatever, 200, 300 innings was, you know, nothing. And the way it's turned into, you know, a guy throws 160 innings and they're capped off. And I think that, you know, you know, I think that's something that really has to, you know, be looked at because our, our you know, and, and Marvin made a very good point. You know, there's no way to know either way is what's going on with these pitchers better now or worse. I think, you know, unfortunately time is going to tell. You know, you can't take an isolated incident like Steven Strasburg having Tommy John surgery as a way to say, no way, it's not working. I mean, I don't think that's a fair statement because it's just one individual and one, you know, unfortunately one major individual. You know, the top pick in the draft, a guy that was absolutely going to be a star, and he knew that from day one. You know, it's one tough example to make as a, a normal thing. But, you know, you look at what the Texas Rangers have done with Nolan Ryan and eliminating the pitch count from the scoreboard and, you know, taking a guy like, you know, Alexei Ogando or C.J. Wilson or even Neftali Feliz. Now, Feliz might not be a good example because he's on the 60-day disabled list. You know, but unfortunately, you know, they, they, you know, that's a situation that may not be working, but for the most part, it's worked. You know, he, you know, Nolan Ryan, I'm sure C.J. Wilson, you know, owes every bit of his next contract that he signed with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim to Nolan Ryan. Because he said, listen, when you're, when you're a starter, you're going to go out there, and I don't care how many pitches you throw. You're going to give us your all. You're going to be a bulldog like I was when I pitched, you know, for so many years. And how can you not listen to Nolan Ryan? You know, the guy is an example of one of the way pitching should be. Now, listen, is there long-term effects that a lot of the pitchers that pitched a lot of innings have to suffer for the rest of their lives? Well, listen, I think I think you can handle it on a case-by-case basis also. You could say with each individual one of these players, you say, listen, you pitched for 15 years, and yeah, you might not be able to lift your arm now, but was it worth it? And, you know, some some pitchers would say, no. You know, I, I, want, I want to be able to, you know, hold my arm up. And some say, listen, I would do it all over again because, you know, those were the best 15 years of my life. And, you know, I think it should be handled on a case-by-case basis. I don't think there should be set standards in a way it has to be. Because, you know, for me, I just, I just don't agree with that. I can't, I can't say every pitcher's got to be on a pitch count, on an innings limit. <laughs> and the only reason, the only reason it's done is because of money. That's all it is. I mean, when you guarantee when you guarantee a top pitcher, you know, five plus million a season, who is you know for not pitching in a major league game, for pitching at the A level or pitching in Triple A, before they've even made their major league debut, when you're guaranteeing that kind of money, when you're guaranteeing that kind of money, you know, when you're looking at it, you know, from that perspective. Hold on one second. But uh, you know, when when you're when you're looking at it from that perspective, it's you know, it's something it, it's something that really should be handled on a case by case basis. 
And you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really think that you know you should say every pitcher that's making this amount of money out of college or out of high school should be baby like this. And you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, some careers are going to be ruined by that. And you know, you could say maybe you know, ten years down the road or fifteen years down the road, you know, Steven Strasburg, you know, is on his way to winning, you know, whatever two hundred fifty games, which I think will be the next three hundred. I don't think there's going to be any more 300 game winners. But when he when he's on, you know, capping off a Hall of Fame career, you could say, listen, it worked. It worked now when you know it it didn't, you know, it didn't it didn't seem like it was going to work out at the beginning, but it did now. So years from now, I think we'll have a better understanding of it. But listen, I'm getting tired of talking about this. So um, you know, there's a little little reports coming out of you know some of the New York papers that the Mets have been contemplating whether they're going to make upgrades or what time they're going to, you know, maybe make adjustments to their team to try to be better, to try to be where they have to be. And, you know, they have to maintain what they're doing. Six games over 500 right now puts them in the lead of a National League wild card berth. So there's no reason to say that this team is not competitive. This team is certainly in the playoff race right now. And I think the organization is having their first discussion about what they need to do. And, you know, apparently according to, I believe it's the New York Daily News, they're going to maybe wait a couple minutes or a couple weeks to figure out exactly what they're going to do when it comes to upgrading their team. And I think if you're a Mets fan, that's probably the first sign that the organization is accepting themselves as a contender. Because as a Mets fan, I didn't feel like Sandy Alderson, Fred Wilpon, everybody associated with the Mets, really for the outside of... Terry Collins and the players believe that this team was a contender. Terry Collins believes this team's a contender. These players on the field that go out there every day for the New York Mets believe they're a contender. But now I think they're starting to get the support of the Mets organization. And it's it's funny. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out over the course of the next not only couple weeks but couple months. And, of course, this team has to keep winning. And as I mentioned in the first part of the show, they – pretty much have done what they had to do in this rough part of the schedule. They've lost some games, they've won some games, but they haven't faltered. This was a team this was a time where we could expect that this team was going to fall and this team was going to drop off the face of the earth and go back to the bottom of the division where the Phillies are and the Marlins are right now, but they have stuck in there. They're not only not only hung in there, but they're playing very good baseball. And it's about time that the Mets organization, Sandy Alderson and all his scouts and all his extra, you know, vice presidents and, you know, scouting directors and farm directors and assistant general managers all get together and figure out, is there something that they could do right now to help the team? Now, obviously brings us into, well, obviously if you're going to make a trade, you're going to have to give up something. And I'm not going to be one of those fans that's going to suggest every single player that I don't want to make a trade for. Obviously you're going to have to dip into your farm system somewhere. If you're going to make a significant trade. I mean. Do, do they want to start out. And maybe sign a Brad Lidge. Do they want to sign maybe like a role player type of player. That's not going to cost them anything. You know prospect wise. That might be a start. But honestly. Hey listen. Some of these players that they have in a minor league system. Are going to be exposed to a potential trade. And I know some fans are so tied up. They're so caught up in, 
you know, this is all about the future. Let's keep every little young player that we have. And baseball doesn't work that way. And you know what? The goal is to win, not 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 only for the best teams to win every year, but for decent to okay teams to have a chance to win every year. And you never know, is 2012 going to be the only chance that this organization has? And you never know. You really never know. And, uh, you know, maybe we're welcoming Brett. Brett Boone, you there, buddy? Hey, was it 540 Eastern? Yeah, I'm sorry about that, man. Oh, I screwed you up. I was thinking the whole time I set my alarm for 530 West Coast. uh, You know, you know, I I am so sorry about that. You know what? It's actually a miscommunication, and I'm as responsible for it as you are because I don't think anywhere in our discussions that I mentioned what time zone I was from. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I said, all right, so I set my alarm on my phone for 5.30 just to remind, because I never set alarms. So I figured when it went off, that would remind me that, oh, yeah, I got a phone conversation. <laughs> all right, well, Brad, thanks a lot for having a couple minutes today. And like I said, sorry about the confusion. All right, what? Uh, so what? Are, so your show's over. <laughs> no, nah, almost. We got about another 10 minutes, so it'll be, it'll be good. Here, here's what you got to promise me. We'll get, we'll get together. I'll get you on another time where I could get you, you know, you know, be able to talk to you a little longer. I'll chat for you for the next, you know, five or so minutes, and then uh, we'll set up something for another time. You got it. Awesome, man. Now, Brad, obviously, you, you know, you, you came off you came off a decent career. I mean, honestly, you had your your big year in two thousand one with Seattle. Um, what was what was really your your, your the the maybe the turning point of when you felt you were becoming a real power hitter? Because you know, you look at the season you had in two thousand one; it was led by your power numbers. Were you always looking to be a power hitter, or is this something that developed as you kind of moved well, I, along? Well, I think I came into to, um, baseball as a baseball player and just thought, nope, you're a baseball player. You know, I saw at that point people started to to work out and to watch their diets and to, you know, but I was always from the, you know, I was kind of from the old school. No, I don't do that. I just play baseball. I don't lift weights. I don't do any of that. But people around me were starting to do it, and you know, I kind of scoffed at it. And I went through the. Um, what was it? The 99, 2000, I played for the Braves and the Padres. And um, I started to get frustrated. I'd had some good years. I'd had some tough years. I've had some average years. And, and I just started to think to myself, I wanted to be the best I could be, find out what I could be. And I really started being aware of, of taking care of myself and, and uh, watching what I ate. And the turning point for me, though, I think, you know, going to the gym and, and really training to be, give my body the best chance it could to be the best player I could be. Uh, I've also got to give a lot of credit when I, after the 2000 season with the Padres, I went over and I signed with the Seattle Mariners. And, uh, I remember in spring training, you know, a big guy that I looked to cause I had signed with the Mariners in 90 in the draft. And I had gone to the big leagues with them for a year and a half before I got traded to the Reds. So I got to play with Edgar early in my career. So I'd always looked up to him as a as a great right-handed hitter. Like, how does Edgar do it, you know? And then I got reunited with him in 2001, and I just remember having long chats with him in spring training going, you know, he'd ask me questions, and he'd say, well, what are your goals? I said, you know, I, I, know, I, can, I know I can hit 20 home runs. I know I can drive in 80 runs, but I want to hit, you know, I want to hit 280 and hit 25. And he's like, well, why stop at 280? I said, what are you talking about? He said, 
about 350. I said, well, I hit 320 one time in 1994. I said, the 350's a little lofty. He said, yeah, but I'll tell you what, if you set your goals low, what does that, what does that accomplish? And that's how our dialogue started. And, and over the years, Edgar and myself became very good friends. And he was kind of my mentor when it, come to, when it came to hitting and, and the thinking behind hitting, how you prepare uh, not only your swing, because obviously we have all different swings. I think the great hitters, um, you're all in the same position at impact, but we all get there a different way. Um, if you if you line my stance up with Edgar's stance, it's completely different. But at impact, we're at the same we're at the same position. I'm not comparing myself to Edgar Martinez, but but we just had a lot of discussions, and I mean it was a daily thing. Where, and we became probably best friends on that team. And I just picked his brain. You know, here's a guy that's won a couple of varying titles. He's got a 315 career average. You know, I'm going. This is a guy that I want to I want to talk to. And he just really talked to me about the mental side of the game. And how we prepare for at bats, you know, we know who's who's the pitcher, who's on deck. Are you hot, or is the guy on deck hotter? Who do they want to face? Who do they not want to face? What'd you do against that guy last time? That guy in the pen, if he comes in, what did you do against him last time? So he said, have all this in your mind, and before you leave that on deck circle, you've got a plan. And I had never done that in my career, and I started to do that. Um, and it was just, you know, as as you know, not only was that my biggest season, but but it was kind of a, an unbelievable season team wise. You know, when we won all those games, so I think it was a perfect season that you, that you have probably once in your life. You know, I had it the next year. I had a real good year, and in 2003 I had a great year. But 2001 was 2001, and I don't think we'll ever be able to replace that. But that's what I would say the big difference for me was was the, the preparation, um, watching my body, really concentrating on the gym and and my diet and edgar just basically teaching me the philosophy behind hitting and not the physical but the mental yeah now looking back on that 2001 season i, I honestly i the looks of that team really looked like a team that was capable of winning the world series it was a little bit of a transition because you know ken griffey jr was no longer there randy johnson was no longer there but it had its own different identity now go back to that season. What did did you really feel like you you were playing for a team that really had a chance to win it all that year? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, coming out of coming out of spring training, uh, you know, I thought everybody knew we were good. You know, we had a great team. We had Johnny Olderud at first base. Uh, Carlos Guillen was a young shortstop. David Bell was solid at third. Danny Wilson behind the plate. We had a really good staff. Cameron, Javier. Uh, I don't want to leave anybody out. That's the year Ichiro came. Um, we had Kazuhiro out of the bullpen with Jeff Nelson and Arthur Rhodes setting him up, who had career years. Um, so we knew coming out of spring training, I think looking back, I remember we, we were having a meeting at the end of spring because we had a bad spring, but it was a veteran team. And you know how spring training you know, stats are there. I mean, they're about as useless stat in, in major sports. Exactly. So there was a veteran team, and I remember Lou at the end of spring training kind of <laughs> – in a meeting with the team and kind of airing us out, you know, like we're college kids. And everybody's kind of, you know, respecting Lou, but at the same time laughing inside. And I remember John, you know, he said, you can't just flip a switch when the season starts. So I remember me and Johnny Olerud sitting in the back of the meeting, and Johnny, about as good a guy as you could possibly imagine, he just kind of smirks at me, and I smirk. And a uh, month into the season, you know, we win 20 games in April. And then we win 20 games in May. And I remember having a conversation. <laughs> we were warming up one day, and I, I just 
Oluru came up to me and he said, uh, I guess you can flip a switch. And it, uh, that was funny to me. For someone like Johnny, as humble as he is, to say something like that really. But it, I, I can't really explain that team. I think it's something that comes comes along once in a lifetime. Uh, we just had a cast of characters. I mean, <laughs> completely different personalities that all, for some reason, got along. I know when you win games, when you're winning every day, it's easy for everybody to be a good guy and to be everybody's <laughs> friend. But truly on that team, I mean, we had a lot of different, different personalities, but somehow just meshed really well, and everybody got, got along. It's probably the only team I've ever been on where I wouldn't mind going to dinner with anyone on that team. Really? Yeah, and it was uh, it, it was unbelievable, and, and it helped that you know three or four of us had career years that year. But um, it was still a great team. Um, I think you you know it's got to be something special to win that many games. You know, looking back on it, it's a little bittersweet that we didn't win it all. We of course we knew we were going to win it all. It was just the way the season was going. And if you know, we look back and wonder what happened. You know, nine eleven of course was that year. Yes, and. Um, I think what happened to us a little bit was as we got, you know, close to the record about the last month and a half down the stretch before we broke it, the media started becoming really big, almost like a playoff atmosphere in that clubhouse every day. Are you going to break the record? That was a question every day. And I think the day finally that we did it, it was kind of like we won. We did it. We won the World Series. Oh, wait a minute. Now we got to go to the playoffs. You know, so it was kind of like, Finally, they're going to get off our, get off our back. We finally won the 116. But wait a minute, we got a whole new postseason to go, and we got by Cleveland. Um, I don't think we played that great, but we got by Cleveland relatively easily, and who was a great team at the time. And then we had to face the Yankees, and I think it came. We just played a bad series against the Yankees, and and the Yankees, as I remember, didn't play a good series either. They just played a little bit better than us, and it was a bittersweet ending. But but those those years, you try not to get caught up in how well you're doing. You know, at the end of the day, you kind of when you settled down and and took some time yourself, you you really appreciated what you were going through because you knew it was a special time and probably something you'd never witness again. No, absolutely, man. Now. Yeah, you know, I would love to ask you a ton more questions, but I'm coming right off the top of the hour. But um, listen, I appreciate you coming on. Hopefully, we we'll stay in touch, and I can get you on and ask you all the other questions I want to ask you. Yeah, and I'm so- sorry about the time mix up today. No, no, it's mm. all right, man. Like I said, I take just as much responsibility, if not more. But uh, we'll get. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to come on anytime. Just give me a heads up, and uh, we'll do we'll do a full thing. All right, thanks a lot, Brad. I'll talk to you soon. All right, appreciate it. All right, that was Brett Boone, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. want to thank Eli Gruba, uh, Marvin Freeman, and, of course, Brett Boone. Great job today, as always. We'll get back to you soon. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Let's get out of here.